Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I'm in conversation with Gail Merrifield Papp, the longtime developer of new plays and musicals at the Public Theater and the widow of Public Theater producer, director, and founder, Joe Papp. Gail has recently released a book, Public Private, My Life with Joe Papp at the Public Theater, and it chronicles her and Joe's 26-year relationship looking at the early days of the public theater, including some of the most famous productions like A Chorus Line, Hair, For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Was Enough, The Introduction of Free Shakespeare in Central Park, and much, much more. As the title suggests, Gail gets into both the public and private parts of Joe's life, discussing how what Joe believed about the world at large and how that influenced what the public theater would become whether it had to do with representation and equality in the theater, LGBTQ plus issues, and of course, the devastating impact of the AIDS epidemic. Since today is Cyber Monday, this would be a wonderful addition to a theater lover in your life's library. I will have a link in the show notes on where you can purchase it. And in case you were wondering, we will be back with regular episodes of today on Broadway tomorrow, where Grace and I will recap all of the news that we missed over the holiday. All right. With all of that out of the way, here is my conversation with Gail Merrifield Papp. Gail, I think that today, more than 30 years after Joe passed, theater fans still know about his legacy and the importance that he had on the American theater. But I don't know that people, especially younger theater goers, really know or or remember much about him beyond that. So as we dive into this conversation, I'm just curious, what was Joe like, especially personally, but but professionally as well? Well, of course, he started uh, his idea of theater with the free Shakespeare in the city's parks. And then he founded the Public Theater downtown, which was about free access to artists of every kind uh, with the work that they were writing and composing also. And from that, we started the first season at the Public Theater with the original production of Hair. And that was our first show that was a non-Shakespeare show. And from that interesting beginning, Joe actually produced numbers of works that ended up on Broadway. Some of them were quite unexpected, and Broadway was never his primary goal. But some of the plays that he produced that he felt very passionate about for both artistic and social reasons ended up on Broadway and received remarkable recognition there, starting with his first move to Broadway with a play and a musical in 1972, which amazingly won the Tony Awards for Best Play and Best Musical the same year. That really launched the public theater into the 1970s when it became very well known and its plays continued to get a tremendous amount of attention, both downtown and uptown. Some of them I'm sure that younger people will have heard of. Sure. There was uh, a chorus line, which was a musical that opened on Broadway in the mid-70s. 
which ran for 15 years on Broadway. And at its time, it was a kind of groundbreaker. And it had started as a workshop downtown at the Public Theater with, amazingly, no music, no book, no story, no lyrics, and no choreography. So what was it that Joe liked about it? Uh, What he liked about it was the tapes that he heard of dancers talking about their life as dancers and as young people before they even became dancers. He was incredibly moved by that. It was very authentic and very real, and it had a lot to do with young people seeking jobs. And from his own background, because he grew up in a very humble uh, family in Brooklyn, he understood that need for a job. He came out of the Depression era. It was a different generation. But never, he understood the young people of that time in the 70s uh, expressing those feelings. And so on that basis, he was able to raise the money for a, a workshop to create the work from scratch, which was directed by Michael Bennett, fantastic genius, uh, with... Uh, Numbers of those dancers who made the tapes, working with them to create the presentation of the story. It also had wonderful collaborators, such as Marple Hamlish for the uh, music and Ed Clayband for the lyrics. They all responded to this interesting story that didn't even exist yet. So that was part of the uh, history of the public theater that younger people may be aware of these days. Uh, Another thing that we did, which was, I would say, the most improbable and unexpected move from our theater downtown to Broadway was Endozaki Shange's For Colored Girls Who Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Was Enough. No one thought that play was a candidate for a Broadway transfer from the public theater. But it resonated in the most astonishing fashion downtown by both men and women and developed a tremendous following that historically and traditionally tells a producer, you've got to move move this uptown so more people can see it. So Joe did that, and it ran uh, at the Booth Theater on Broadway and continued to receive an amazing reception uptown also. The interesting thing about these transfers, you know, from downtown to Broadway was that that kind of thing was not Joe's purpose in life or in theater. Uh, His purpose was to bring the theater to people who ordinarily wouldn't be going to theater to make it accessible to them. He started out with the idea of, you know, free Shakespeare in the parks, which still goes on to this very day in the park, in Central Park here. And he uh, also developed the idea of free access without limitations of who could be cast and what kinds of roles, first in a Shakespeare or then mm-hmm. in anything. So the only criteria he felt was important was really talent. So things were cast uh, according to an actor's talent. 
And that opened up a whole vista for many people in the theater because it meant they had a freer access to continuing with their creative lives in a different way. This goes back in history a little bit to the 60s and 70s. And I think it's still uh, a very interesting and valid way to approach the theater today. And I think there's a kind of renewed spirit of that sort that uh, I think really resonates with the history of Joe's Theater, both in the past and also as it is today, because the public theater is still there and doing some remarkable work. Yeah, absolutely. You you talked about that idea of not only getting people into the theater as audience members who might not normally go and see a show, but also opening the doors to people of marginalized communities who wouldn't have previously, and even in some cases today, be cast in those shows. In the book, you talk about like this democratization uh, of theater that was kind of at the center of Joe's work. When you go from doing the the free Shakespeare in the park, and, and obviously he spearheaded the idea of purchasing the land that the public theater now sits on as well. How was that idea of bringing new audiences, especially audiences for people who couldn't afford the theater in a traditional sense, how how did that kind of infuse every decision that he made, whether that was an artistic decision or a business decision like purchasing uh you know, the land down uh, uh, down where the public theater sits today. How Was that always something that it was at the forefront of his mind, or was it, you know, he'd pick yes. a project here and there? No, no, it was always at the forefront of his mind. The, uh, you know, he came, as I mentioned, from a humble background, a poor family, immigrant family uh, in Brooklyn. So he had no advantages when he became interested in the theater after he got out of the Navy during World War II. He became involved with the Actors Lab on the West Coast at that time. And he realized that he really loved actors on the stage. He started acting a little bit, but then he didn't want that kind of life. He didn't think that was for him. And it took him a few years to understand that he wanted to produce plays. His first love was Shakespeare. That had been true since he was in his teens. And he loved the words. He loved the sound of words. He was bilingual. His first language was Yiddish. So he had an ear for languages and accents that came out of his background. It was very rich for him and made the sound of Shakespeare something that he just reveled in. And from that, he wanted to expand his uh, um, outlook as a producer when he finally realized he was a producer. It took him a few years to understand that. And he wanted to bring new work with new voices to the theater, as well as Shakespeare. Like He wanted them side by side. So that was what happened. And it comes out of his uh, background. Growing up in depression, in the depression, uh, he was on the street a lot and uh, talking to people from soapboxes on the corner. And he was moving people who'd been... Uh, ousted from their apartments with all their furniture and belongings put on the sidewalk. He would uh, organize a few friends and they'd put it all back into the apartment when the police were off the uh, street and weren't looking. Okay. They'd try to restore people to their apartments that they'd just been evicted from. So he was a 
teenage activist in that respect. And he always had a sense of justice uh, for all people. And it, it, his artistic ambitions kind of fused with his sense of social responsibility from that time, I think. And he didn't really see a separation between the two things. They were one and the same. There was there was nothing that divided that in his mind. Yeah, and it's very clear from the shows that he championed and you uh, championed uh, along with him, and in some cases, I think, brought to his attention in the first place that the social activism was always part of the DNA of the public theater. It still is today, but especially under under Joe's leadership, whether that is having to do with the LGBTQ community or the AIDS right. crisis. Those were things that not only showed up in the public facing, no pun intended with the word public, but the, the public facing news of the day, but also in the artistic news. And that was something that was very important to the growth and the the legacy of of what Joe did with the public theater. Absolutely. Uh, when we did uh, The Normal Heart, which was Larry Kramer's play about the AIDS crisis in the mid-80s when it was completely ignored on every governmental level, Joe uh, put his total commitment behind that play at a, at a time when, unfortunately, it wasn't very well received by the press. Right. But he... he uh, Nevertheless, saw its development, which I was a part of, with the remarkable Larry Kramer, who wrote it. And he uh, decided to run it in the face of a poor reviewing response, which in New York City is very critical because you only get audiences out for a show usually by a good review in the Times. It's a kind of a one newspaper t town with respect to the theater in that, that way. So he said that he was going to run it as long as he could, despite the reviews. So he did that, and it actually became the longest-running play in our history. And it, it went on to have 600 performances in different languages around the world. And then in uh, 19, I think it was, 19, I don't know, it was, it, was the night, it was 2011, many years after 1985 in the original production, yeah. it was revived and was done on Broadway, uh, co-directed by Joel Gray and George C. Wolfe. And it finally won this <laughs> Tony that it really deserved <laughs> a long ago in 1985. It won the Tony for the best revival of a play. And thank God Larry Kramer, the author, was still alive then. And uh, he was able to uh, enjoy that much-delayed recognition, uh, which he certainly did. There, There is a great story about Joe talking to the cast of The Normal Heart after those reviews come out. And then yeah. in the book, you've also got stories uh, about just the way that he was able to talk to people, uh, you know, especially when they had issues, uh, you know, I'm thinking specifically, you mentioned hair, there was, I don't know if mutiny is the right word, but there was some, um, some concerns before the first performances of hair. And oh, yeah. <laughs> from what Joe talked about, he just sat down and talked through the issues where people, and it's funny because we hear so many stories about these great artistic minds, especially of that era who were volatile and, and dictatorial, but 
that doesn't seem like that was what Joe was all about. No, not at all. What was it about him that that made him want to sit down and talk to people about, especially the artists that he worked with, about things that might be difficult in in in, in a business that so much has to to go well to have any kind of success at all. Right. Well, of course, he didn't regard the theater as a business. Uh, right. He, he, he was he understood you know the financial aspects of running a nonprofit uh, theater organization but he didn't regard it as a business nevertheless he had to raise a lot of money in order to finance everything that he did because nothing made money downtown ever and he was giving away tickets always uh, for free to a 2000 seat amphitheater in central park this is no business model whatsoever and so he <laughs> was always focused on what he was doing. And I think in answer to your question, Joe had, his, I think, the soul of an artist. And the way he expressed that was through what he produced. So he had a tremendous personal investment, not financial so much, but personal investment in the kind of things that he produced. And therefore, his interest in the creators of those works was very intense and real. It was never for some other reason, such as uh, making money or anything of that sort. It was totally real, and he talked to people as a real person. So they sensed that. He's also a very charismatic person who had a gift of expression and a, a charismatic personality. So people responded to that, and in a field where you often don't really believe some of the things that you're told, uh, or you, you just don't believe the sincerity, even praise uh, sometimes, uh, Joe was totally real and honest in that respect, and people responded to that very strongly. Across the board, most remarkable spectrum of people uh, young, old, uh, every gener three generations now that have been involved with this theater who uh, feel that. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, it's in the DNA of the organization. It's been passed along, even though times change and they're very different now from the way they were at the time that I was with Joe at the theater. And I recognize that. But nevertheless, some of those things that uh, were important in the past have a, I think, a kind of meeting for younger people today to use and possibly readapt and interpret in their own way in terms of how to deal with our present situation in this country and also some of the challenges that exist right now in the theater, which are really quite mm -hmm. serious. Yeah, I was, I was that was going to be one of my next questions is both the commercial, but especially the not-for-profit theater community is is going through a pretty devastating time oh, yeah. right now, dealing with all of the economic uncertainty that has at least in part been born out of the pandemic. What right. lessons from your early years working with Joe at the Public Theater do you think are important for theater artists and theater organizations, not-for-profit or otherwise, to keep in mind as they navigate a really tumultuous and and potentially devastating time in the history of the art form. Right. Well, I don't know that I have any kind of answer to that 
question, really. But um, from what I saw in the past, the way Joe handled some very difficult things uh, in our era, they bear some similarity to what's going on today. Not exactly, but there are things that really remind me of what he dealt with in the past a lot. And he was uh, a pragmatic person. He certainly had uh, purposes in, in his life that were very passionate. But he was always a, I, I call him in the book, a, a kind of a pr pragmatic radical in a sense, uh, because he had his eye on what could be done with what he had at hand and with who he might enlist to help him with anything. And in the protests of the past, he organized always. It was the first thing you organize people who think like yourself. I'm thinking pri primarily of social protest right now. And you uh, protest out loud and you don't stop. You use whatever means you have to amplify your point of view and you get it to as many people as you can and then you don't stop. You just keep going on with it uh, until some kind of uh, change or resolution may start to happen, although that's not guaranteed. But he, uh, that, that kind of uh, thinking certainly comes out of the Depression era and an earlier decade of the 30s, 40s, maybe possibly the 50s, where you understood that as you grew up. Things are so different now. I don't know how you adapt that exactly, but with the social media and other re resources that exist now, if Joe were alive, I'm sure he'd use them uh, in the way that he knew to use uh, older technologies. So I think that's the answer. You organize and enlist people and protest and go about it as if you're hammering a nail into something or laying bricks, like like hard work. <laughs> That's yeah. how we went about things. I'll, I'll wrap it up here with a, with a couple questions, but is there a story in the book, maybe that we haven't talked about, that sticks out to you that is emblematic of who Joe was as a person, not just as a theater maker and, and uh, creator of the public theater, but as a, as a human being who he was? Yes, I think so. Uh, he he loved to sing. He had a very good voice, not trained, but excellent voice. He loved to sing. Joe had an interest in many aspects of life. He was interested in uh, seashells and their lives and their predatory behavior, which was an early hobby of mine. He uh, loved... Uh, reading out loud to me, and uh, he did that in the most dramatic way. He brought tremendous life to the interest that he had in, li in life, and he had this remarkably generous aspect where he actually liked to help people. He, he really wanted to help people. I don't know how you could express it exactly, but that outgoing desire to be of use to someone else was an absolutely astonishing and constant aspect of his personality. I felt it 
everybody felt it. And it was just a part of the way he was, a most unusual kind of characteristic to find so constantly present in another person. But that is the way he was. And he only felt fulfilled when he felt it was being useful to either a single person or to an audience or to a generational component at the time. Uh, that was what he saw as his primary connection. And he was always looking for ways to serve it both artistically and socially. When you sat down to write the book, or perhaps even before that, when you decided to write this book, what were you hoping to communicate one about Joe and, and about your relationship with Joe and what you witnessed during your time together, both personally and professionally, but also what were you hoping to communicate to the theater world at large about what they could learn from his years running the public theater? Well, I, I hoped, first of all, I just be honest, I, I miss Joe uh, terribly. And although it took me numbers of years before I started to write this book, uh, I thought I, I could sort of communicate with them in a certain way because we talked a lot to each other. And I missed that. And I thought this is another way of kind of continuing my conversation with them. But the book expanded way beyond that as I started to write it. And I felt there was something in what he did and the way he was and the life that I shared with him that might be of use to younger people. And as our 21st century evolved, uh, this became a uh, more urgent aspect of writing the book in my mind. And although I'm uncertain whether it reaches out to uh, younger people that way, uh, I, I, I hoped it would reach out to anybody that way because Joe had a large perspective on what he was doing and he was able to reach across barriers of communication, background, and experience to people that uh, he didn't necessarily agree with on everything. And I thought, well, that's an unusual quality. And uh, he was able to do that in many instances. And I thought that's a useful thing to know of. And it's uh, important to have that kind of skill and outlook. outlook if you're going to get along and try to achieve anything, both artistically and socially in your life. So I wanted to communicate that as best I could, uh, aside from my personal desire to sort of communicate with him again through writing about him. Yeah. Well, last question. Do you have a favorite production that you both worked on at the public, whether it's one of the big famous ones, chorus line, hair, all, you know, a normal heart, things we've talked about, or something that might be a little bit under the radar uh, that people wouldn't uh, immediately assume? Well, I think what people might not immediately assume is my passionate connection with Indozaki Shange's For Colored Girls, mm -hmm. because she became a friend uh, after the play was done at the public theater. And um, I admired her language, her passion, her humor. Uh, it was on a universal level, I felt. Uh, just as you possibly say, well, what can you have in common with Tolstoy 
and the things that he wrote about the War of eighteen twelve, you know, <laughs> right around it. Well, you know, there's something called universality in writing, and she had that. It absolutely reached across the barriers of anything uh, in terms of shared experience, which I didn't have with her. But she had that universal uh, master mastery of the language that she developed in her poetry. And it was really just one of the major experiences I've ever had in the theater was her work with For Colored Girls. And then she went on after that and did several more plays at the public theater, which were also quite exceptional. Well, that's uh, that's great. And I saw the revival on Broadway just a few years ago, and I think that universality yes. still uh, still works today. It is still just as potent as I imagine it was originally. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It really still does. Yeah. Well, Gail, thank you so much for talking about this. It, the book is, is fascinating for people who love theater, love the public theater, and love, I think, in my mind, what the theater could and should be. I think this is a very important text for anybody who cares about both the past and the future of the art form. So thank you so much, not only for talking about it, but also for getting this all down on paper, because I think it'll be very instructive, both intellectually and emotionally for many, many theater makers for years to come. Oh, thank you so much for that. It's been a pleasure talk to you.